Welcome to the Samuel Andreev podcast. To support this podcast, please visit the donation page of Samuel's website or his Patreon page. There are links in the description. Samuel's Twitter is at Samuel Andreev. I've had the immense honor of being able to have two wide-ranging discussions with Bill Harkelrode, also known under the stage name Zuthorn Rollo, and we touch upon quite a few different topics in our discussions, ranging from what he's doing now, his general philosophy of music, to, of course, his years in the Magic Band, performing the music of Captain Beefheart. So before we launch into the interview, I just wanted to make a couple of brief statements. The first is that Bill has been devoting a lot of his time and energy to teaching, so if that's something that you're interested in hearing more about, you can visit his website, which is zoothornrollo.com. And the second is that during the first portion of the interview, you'll notice that the audio quality is not up to my usual standard. That was due to a bug in my recording software, but please note that it does improve as the interview continues on. So I really hope you enjoy the discussion and let's get into it. So the, the first thing I wanted to ask you about was basically what you're doing at the moment, because... Um, I've read your book, uh, Lunar Notes, which I believe came out in the late 90s and 97. And I've also listened uh, quite a lot to your solo record, which came out in 2001. And I think that for a lot of people, those documents are a major source of information about your life and about your, your art and about what you, what you are doing. So maybe you could fill us in a little bit about what you've been doing since then. Okay. Um, I did uh, basically half of an LP worth of music, about a half hour worth of music, wanting to pay for it, so I wasn't doing out of pocket because I'm not dealing with record companies or anybody paying for it. So I thought that was a way to get the music out there, and um, they were all based on masks. They were the titles and the inspiration for the tunes, and so the, those are out there also, like the Bozo is. Um, and then, to my surprise, music is all free, and that was a an amazing thing at first I, I think I tried to downplay it because it hurt me a lot you know because I thought this was going to be some way for me to be able to continue writing and having it pay for itself at least mm -hmm. I don't want to do vanity projects yeah and so I only did half the second half is kind of kicking around and then I just went okay I'm done I'm just teaching mm -hmm. um, so that became the source of income you know you got to pay the bills but musically I think your question is probably more about that um, after the beef art thing, I really wanted to study, and after Mallard, right after that, I kind of moved into the hills of Oregon and practiced and played only classic guitar for six, seven years. So I started reading again and started reading theory books and started practicing and then gradually went back into electric guitar and did that. So that kind of got me forward to, long story long, um, what I'm doing now. And basically, it's, I'm, an, I'm an improviser. And somewhere along the line, when I heard Keith Jarrett sit down and play as if it was a composition, totally improvised, I said, I want to be able to do that. And so that's been a long struggle. Of course, I'm not Keith Jarrett, uh, <laughs> um, an amazing player. Um, but so I'm currently working on newer vocabulary as an improviser. So uh, whatever uh, pitch combinations is chordal units, but not chords, you know, not standard one, three, five, seven stuff, but trying to build a vocabulary. And then I just have a bunch of a list of things that I want to be able to play in either major harmonic minor, melodic minor, and now harmonic major. So if I have a particular voicing, I want to be able to play them through as in fourths or fifths or whatever, through any of those key sources so that it's jazz theory, you know, I have a chord sitting there, I want to be able to approach that chord or talk to the chords is how I think of it, with a, uh, a vocabulary that is meaningful to me. 
So it comes from jazz theory, but I'm not a jazz player. Okay, interesting. Well, maybe we could connect that to the solo record. Uh, we saw Bozo Under the Sea, and you could tell us a little bit about how, how that was put together. Was there a great deal of improvisation in that? Because I understand that you wrote those in, in MIDI, right? And then... Yes, yeah. well, all MIDI. Um, and kudos to Greg Bindi and the drummer, because he created a freedom so it didn't sound so stodgy, you know, and broken, broken up. But that was the only way I could afford to do it. And then it still cost... I made money on it. Hooray! You know, but... Um, so I midied up all the parts, wrote all the bass parts, and there was slight improvisation, improvisation there. The horn players and the solos that they played were totally improvised to try to breathe some life into a stiff way to do it. But again, I wanted to do some music and I wanted good players, but I couldn't afford to fly people around to play at the same time and do all that. So that was the way I did it. Once Greg had put his drum parts on, then it became very live feeling and we reacted to that. So he really set the table in a lot of ways. I give him a lot of credit. Great, very great musician. Um, and then he put vibes on. Um, still, those tunes were, um, I hope I'm much better than I was back then. Uh, that's all, basically 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so I have always been a blues player at heart. Those are really blues play, blues things. That has to be the element in there for me. There's something earthy about that that really appeals to me. Um, although some of the, you know, the classic guitar stuff shows up here and there, you know, nice patina or something like that. It has an element of that, you know? So, but you know, it's hard for me to listen to now. It's quite a long time ago, but it was blues based and then just basically just trying to satisfy my ears. I'm just trying to do something that I would want to hear again. Mm -hmm. A lot mm -hmm. of improvised things, you know, um, I don't want to, I'll say this, a friend of mine knows Klein very good guitar player and he just says produce 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 and he does you know but sometimes if i was in that i'm not going to say for him but for me if i was in that i'd play it once and it was a great experience and i'd never want to hear it again i don't think that's composition and i want to be better than that i want to be able to play something that i can even listen to myself a few times afterwards right and that's if that makes sense i don't you know but definitely that album was you know, blues-based with the things that I've kind of studied and learned, you know, there's always, you know, going to be these other elements in there, but right. that's pretty much what that is. So that, that was that was a highly composed, pre-composed uh, piece of music, yes. right? So there's very little, right. even in the solos, I imagine, there's very little improvising. No, I was improvising. Oh, you were improvising? Uh, yeah, all my solos I just played. Okay. Um, and I tried not to do a lot of editing and things like that, so I left all the... The, the messed up stuff in there and the fuzzy stuff, I left it in there. Uh, I, at least I wanted that if in an intellectual way to, to, to make it more real and not so stiff. Yeah. So those were improvised, and the horn parts and whatever parts were improvised. But all, you know, and the bass parts slipped out of it here and there to create some natural feel. But the bass parts, the chordal stuff, all the baritone parts that were backing all that, all composed for sure. Uh-huh, okay. One of the things that really strikes me about that disc is the extraordinary variety of guitar tones. And actually, that's something that I would, I would say with regards to your, your recorded body of work, period. But it's particularly in evidence on that record where there's a, an extraordinary array of different sounds and timbres and approaches to guitar playing. So is that something that you consciously set out to do or does it sort of flow naturally out of your practice as a musician? The second part. <laughs> I, I think it's more of an organic process for me. I've had, I'm kind of a, I'm not parallel, I've been serial, okay? Grew up as a kid, 
learned jazz standards at 15, and I played surf music. And all these different times, I was one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. But after you get really old, me, that serial of events turns into those things, so you pull back on some of those. Like I said, the classical period was really important to me to visit that, to play that music, and have to be as articulate as possible because I really revere the technique of classical players. But So those things are there, but then I have to do my thing to them just to make it make sense to me sonically. And I have to please my ears. So because I've been doing it in various versions of it where I'm a uh, guitar, mm. doing simple... that stuff right so if I'm playing like that or different shapes like that I want to cut the sound to this the, the sound of the instrument to match what I'm trying to play okay so the, I found it very interesting what you said about the project where you recorded half an LP so I gather that the 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 radical restructuring of the of the music industry that's occurred over the past 10 to 20 years has been an issue for you as it has been for a lot of musicians and I find it you know, genuinely unfortunate that a lot of people are, are are discouraged from from recording for that reason because it's become so extraordinarily difficult to get paid for what you're doing. So, do you see um, a remedy to this situation? You know, you as a as a as a performer, as an as a very established guitarist, you know, even even you have to deal with this problem. I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, I I am so stuck in my ways now, and I guess I'm trying to fit into being this old man now and just get through life. You know, you know, in the, in the current world, it, events and things, we'll just leave politics out of it. But it's tough enough. So I'm just trying to find a way to deal with all that. But I don't know how it pro- progresses. I don't know what a 22-year-old thinks. Personally, I don't think I had enough life experience to be making decisions that everything should be free when I was that young and inexperienced. And I think that art is really greatly suffering because of that. Because I am not a performer. I never really liked it. There was moments, of course, and that exhilarating thing of playing with people and standing in the sound. I miss that greatly, but not the falderaw of going out there and flying places and dealing with performers. I'm not a performer. So the only way that your, your music is now is a business card to sell tickets at an event. So it's geared to totally about performing. And if you're one of those, it's great. It's fine. But I think it's dumbing down music. We go back to Napster and all that stuff, right, when that first started happening. And again, I think a lot of choices are made by very intelligent 16 to 22-year-olds that haven't had, have no life experience yet. And so that's a weird thing that we're, this seems to be playing out. I don't know how it goes. But since technology facilitates all of this ability to write things, everybody has a home studio, that type of stuff, people can create music. Getting it out there and, and having access to it is the other part, you know. Uh, right, so there is a, there is an upside to it. It sort of democratizes the process of making a record in a certain sense. It's it's a lot cheaper and more portable than it ever was before, but you still have the problem of, um, of monetizing it and and getting it out into the public. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, I noticed that you with your YouTube thing, right? Brilliant. You know, I, I kind of shied away from a lot of that. I just wanted to establish myself as a teacher. I go, this is a, something I can feel good about. I feel that that's a strength of my abilities. Um, so. That's, that's, I just went, okay, I don't want to worry about all that. I have enough things to worry about. Uh, you know, so, you know, I just... But then again, I, I, man, I'm all over YouTube. You know, just to bring up a name, I saw one of the things you talked about, Kurtog. Is that how you say it? Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. Um, because I just started Googling. Uh, I like string quartets a lot because it reminds me. I grew up in a four-piece band, right? And it reminds me of that. And so uh, I wanted things from you know the 20th century, early 1900s stuff to start hearing more modern things. And I ran into this guy, and I went, "Man, some of this is so cool." Now I couldn't tell you what it's doing. I know you were saying that. And I'd like to have that conversation after this. But um, so those things are exciting to me. You know, so I the YouTube thing and and young musicians. I don't know, there's a guy Joey Alexander. I don't know if you know who I mean. From in, Indonesia, Bali. I don't know where, but um, and he taught himself how to play through YouTube videos. He came here at nine years old, and everybody's going, "Oh my gosh, who is this kid?" I so he has this video, and there's a bunch of them at 11 years old, and he's playing through Giant Steps, and you know, not my favorite music, but difficult to play, three tonic system and all that. And so he's just playing through there, and he's this 9, 10, 11 year old kid sitting there going, yeah, I like John Coltrane. And then all of a sudden, when the, it's time to play, he's 50 years old. He's an amazing, almost like a Mozart type of kid. Hmm. Okay, he is that special. There's a bunch of those happening now. So that's the good side, is that those people we didn't, wouldn't even know existed. So through this YouTube thing and, and the learning, the teaching thing of the availability of the stuff, that's the flip side of it. Right. Making money for a non-performer, it's not going to happen for me. Or I haven't figured out that way yet. Let's, let's say that. But I find it fantastic that you, you actually were able to not only, re, not only recoup your expenses with the solo record, but actually make money. So, I mean, compared to the Beefheart stuff, where presumably there, there are no residuals coming to any of the performers who played on those. Yeah, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. Gail Zappa owns it. Well, she's gone now, but the Zappa Trust owns those things. I don't know. There must have been, after all this time, some paychecks, you know, certainly not you know, commiserate with how much people want to talk about it. Well, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but I, I wanted to, <laughs> yeah, because that's a, that's a big topic, but I wanted to talk about also your, your, your pedagogical activities and, um, and what you've been doing as a teacher. So what sort of age range are you, are you working with at the moment? At the moment, pretty much, uh, I would say, older, your age and older. I think you're 36, 37, something like that. Yeah, I'm 36. But... Um, I've had from six, seven years old to 80s. Um, I try to take on as many different things as possible so that I'm not dealing with the same type person. Skype has been within the last two, two years of doing that. Okay? okay. But basically, I if I have all the same type of student, I get it's not comfortable. I like complete beginners. I like advanced players. I'll get these people with advanced degrees come here from Berkeley School of Music. They do one lesson. I go, really? I'm going to, what am I, you know, guys with PhD and they're talking serial harmony, you know, 12 tone stuff. And I'm going, I know what you're talking about, but why are, you know, they just want to learn something different than what they know, right. which is cool. So I like that engagement for me because the whole thing is I'm being paid to learn. Okay. So that engagement, it's a little more human connection that way. And over the years of teaching, um, there's, few people where I dealt with a lot of people that were uh, would lose their, their partner, you know, grief victims and things like that, so they needed something to get into, people with strokes, mm -hmm. any of those things. So I, I do all of that, you know. My online stuff, yeah, that's probably half, at least half people that were fans, but then, then again, probably in your age group or people that can afford to do it. As a teacher, I mean, you certainly have a, an extraordinary background, one that not a lot of teachers will have. 
and you make yourself available for, for lessons, which is extraordinary in itself. So I'm wondering what sort of influence that might have on your approach to teaching. I mean, having had all these experiences playing very, uh, let's call it avant-garde music, especially when you were very young, how does that how does that affect the way that you might approach a younger player who's, who's coming to you and, and wants to, uh, you know, wants to develop their skills on an instrument? Or, or does it have any effect at all? It does a lot, you know, because I try to teach how I wish I had been taught. Oh, interesting. Okay. You know, it's like, what would have made sense to me? I mean, trying to be somebody else, okay? You've got an advanced degree in music. I didn't go to music school. I got a lot of books. I, read, I went to the library. You know, I decided I needed to learn these things. So... There's enough schools and enough education situations, and things are really, there's, a lot of things are really written right down the pathway, classical jazz, whatever, those things, those disciplines. I think if, for me to be successful and to, to just do a good job and feel good about what I'm doing, I need it very organic and very personable. If I make friends with the person I'm talking to, because I'm not talking to a class dictating in lesson two, now this chapter you're going to write this piece, and you're going to write this type of stuff. That's all covered. I don't need to get in line to do a mediocre job of what's already being done. Right. So if I make friends with somebody, they're going to listen, and then they're going to care about what's going on. I try to inspire them to teach themselves. I try to put myself out of business as soon as possible. <laughs> so how do I do that? You know, um, if, you know, I want to learn this song, and then they, we just do that. If, if it's a beginner, and then I say, well, have you heard this? I'm always, I'm, I'm cheating, I'm trying to pull them along to what I think will help, you know, and sometimes it doesn't work, but some, a lot of times it does. So it's a more interpersonal thing to try to use whatever my skill sets are, which I think is being involved in many different ways to play, rather than being a really great this or a really great that. And I think that's what I try to instill, you know, that care about it, care about yourself, take yourself seriously, start a journal ask those questions. Come with questions. I'm Google, right? Mm -hmm. You come and teach yourself and I'm Google, interactive Google. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's really, you know, trying to use the different things that I've got. One of the things that I was actually wondering about is, from what I gather, most of the Magic Band did not read music. And so I, I you correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine that when you were a teenager, you didn't, you didn't read music either. And a lot of the the sort of music that a guitarist is going to want to play, if they're if they're you know playing blues-based music, is not necessarily things that are primarily written down, right? They're things that are are, are learned in a in a different way. So, how important is it, do you think, for a young guitarist to learn how to read music? Very important, very important. And I did read a little because I had taken lessons, just a few lessons, and like I said, I was trying to play these jazz standards. I am not a good reader to this day. I would need to practice two hours a day on my sight reading. That's not a skill set that I want to spend time on. But yeah. I read well enough to learn the material. Okay, so that's a choice that I made. I have this many hours to practice. So to answer your question, I went off a little bit there. But to answer your question, I think it's very important because that's the first recording machine. That's what that, it's the original tape recorder of what this stuff was, right? So you bring this music forward. And all of the, the information is in notation, not all of it, you know, but it's very important. To at least get to that, do I cram it down their throats? No, they get they're going to get that from a lot of places, you know. So if somebody's skittish about that and wants to play, and it's my job not to turn them into great musicians, it's my job to help them go forward because they're paying me; it's their dollar. Now, if that doesn't work, and sometimes I go, well, you're not working hard enough. Psh, out of here. 
<laughs> you have to do that. If yeah. nothing else, a wake-up call. But music, reading notation is really important. Okay. Absolutely, because all the information is there. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's quite interesting. I was, I was wondering, actually, with regards to that, what sort of advice you would give to a younger musician who's considering doing something really off the beaten track, something, let's say, you know, on the more experimental side of things, which you have experience with. And you, from what I gather, it was, it was extraordinarily difficult um, dealing with just the, the conditions in which a lot of that, that music was made and, and sort of the, the way that, that you as players retreated at the time. And I wonder what sort of advice you might give to this hypothetical young musician who maybe is interested in doing something that doesn't, let's say, fit into an established category already, but is really exploratory in nature. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking of your side of the thing because I have checked your website out and what you think of this type of music, so I'm, that's in, involved in my answer. Again, I'm trying to be personal here, not just be the interviewee. Um, but um, the thing is, is play what you love. And if that means, and I get a lot of kids and their parents, I want to go to music school. And the parents are like this. We want him to be a doctor, okay? And so I'll say something. This isn't blanket, but I will say this often, is find a way to pay for your life and care about your music. If you try to make a living playing music, more likely than not, you're going to have to play music you don't like to survive. I'm lucky to even do this, and it's because I married well, <laughs> to be able to afford to be just a teacher, right? Um, so it's protect the music, protect your identity to it, and care about it, and check check it out, check it out, check things out, try anything, you know. Um, and if this this theoretical person you're talking about is really wanting to play avant-garde things, I do that, but don't skip over the other information. You know, I've seen, and this is this is a knee-jerk reaction for me, uh, especially early B-Fart days and things like that. I saw a lot of fakers, and I wouldn't call us fakers. We didn't, we couldn't do what you did with Frownland, saying, "Okay, the opening licks at seven and all of that." I could have done some of that, but we didn't think of it that way. That wasn't how it was done. That wasn't the process. You know, so uh, know what you're doing, and maybe don't skip. Try simpler forms and build your way to that type of knowledge. Because I think I, I think there's big holes in there. If you skip, I'm sure you played Bach, you understood things like that before you became, you know, more experimental, newer, whatever your, your music is. But follow your heart is the basic thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. If you can, if you can pay for it and do that, and you're that type of person that can go out there and you're driven enough and that's what you're going to do, I have two or three students that have done that. Mm -hmm. Two or three. Mm -hmm. Not the hundreds I've had. Yeah, well, it's it, it's a rare thing statistically, though, isn't it? I mean, someone who yeah. can really doggedly stick to a, a personal vision, you know, despite all of the obstacles that one invariably encounters, you know, when you're when you're facing the world, and and generally speaking, the world doesn't want new things from you. It wants things that it can recognize and can and can fit into established categories. And if you're going outside of that, then then there's going to be a certain degree of resistance. So you also have to temperamentally, you have to have the kind of character that is able to. Uh, face down that kind of resistance and keep going and, right. and, and you know until you until you eventually get there right. So yeah, when you really you can really develop that and, and once you develop that it becomes maybe a little more obvious to people that wouldn't understand it If you're only halfway there and you're teetering 
maybe people, what's that? But if you're really there and you know what you're doing, even if you don't understand it, you can go, that person knows what they're doing. So I think there's, you know, when you get to that place, you develop it and here it is, this is what I do. So with, with regards to your playing, there's one question that I, that I had actually, which was, you know, I, I was struck by the fact, listening to a great deal of your work and in, in pre preparing for this interview. So I, I listened to really early Beefheart stuff. I listened to your solo record. I listened also to the record that you did with John French. City of Refuge, and I've listened to the Mallard stuff, and there, there's definitely a very strong fingerprint that you have on everything you've done. There's clearly a, a sound and a, an approach to playing that, to my ears anyway, maybe it's different for you, but it, it sounds it sounds consistent. Obviously, there's progress, and you've uh, you've greatly expanded your world in the in the uh, in the intervening years. But there seems to be a, a consistency of well, there's a consistency of something, let's put it that way, uh, across across your body of work. So I wonder, is that is that apparent to you? And how do you see it evolving from your earliest recordings up to now? My first reaction to your question is, it's almost a negative thing. The things that, that I, <laughs> the things that I may not like about my playing, some of those things are still there. So those are the ones that stick out to me because I'm, I'm my own policeman. It's like, what, why do I keep doing that? You know, what is that habitual? So you got to record yourself and, and hear those things. So that's my first reaction is the things I don't like. I, I, like I said, I, I have a bluesy nature, which may not be expressed in, I hope it's not expressed in, the, like I said, did a second ago, in the most obvious form. But so that, that ties it together. But, <clears throat> you know, if you think of me playing in B-Fart, I didn't write that music, you know. So I'm playing very difficult things and grew a lot because of that, of course. I mean, that was really a great thing, not emotionally like we talked about, but uh, learning-wise. But then from there, I went, okay, what am I doing now? Who am I? Because I'm not playing somebody else's music now. What am I going to play? That's why I've got into classic guitar to just wipe the slate clean and then go from there. So, you know, I've evolved, hopefully, you know, uh, What's similar is, yeah, it's just that, that's all I can come up with really is that it's, it's the, a bluesy nature. I played with a very rigid feel in the B-Fart thing and that was what was wanted. I tried to eradicate that uh, because I didn't want it and now I want part of that. You know, I want that as part of way, a way to play. When you say a bluesy feel, I mean, one thing that strikes me is that there's a, there's a, there's a rhythmic approach that seems to be all over a lot of your material. I'm, I'm not exactly sure how to characterize it, but it's it's really rhythmically tight. I wonder if that's something that, that you've consciously worked on over the years, if that's a, a defining aspect of your style in some way or another. Well, I, okay, you're saying that you think it is, and okay, great, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, and I do think that's an, uh, a direct uh, effect of, of the Beefheart Band stuff. Because, you know, uh, somebody sent me a quote somewhere, it was you. I'm going to say that, that it was the more the rhythmic structure of what we were doing in Trout Mask and, and decals, but more so Trout Mask, um, that set it apart. That notes could have been exchanged, but it was the rhythmic impact of when we were together or fighting against each other, three against four, three against two, whatever, and those things, those rhythms. And those rhythms came from, uh, you know, listening to Coltrane, listening to jazz, listening to the, those things that were having those rhythms in it and there's a strong imprint that happened there that being said one of my strengths in a, as a learner was rhythms i could play them early on weakness was technique and memory remembering all these parts so rhythm was a very much organic part so mostly it's organic i haven't thought of any rhythms that i've had i just let them fly 
Okay. Yeah. I, I do think the Beefheart thing really set that up. Well, it must have, because having to memorize 28 pieces in over a nine-month period, I mean, th that's not the sort of thing that, that typically happens. I mean, this is, this is a very, very, very unusual approach in, in every respect, and music of extraordinary complexity, too. So, I mean, one of the things that I, I mentioned in my, in my video was that a typical Beefheart song from that period contains probably 10 times the amount of material, at least, um, as what you would get in a, a more average rock song. So the, just the, the, the sheer quantity of things that you would have had to memorize without it being written down primarily uh, is mind-boggling. So you know, hearing you say that the um, memorization was, was tricky for you, I think, I think is kind of, kind of amusing to hear because it, I, can't, I can't think of who wouldn't have found that tricky, to, to put it mildly. I, I, I see what you're saying. I'm just saying what was more organic and what wasn't. I had right. to really work at it. And there was a lot of rehearsal, which is well-documented playing and playing and playing and playing, you know, so, and also, I was 19 years old, <laughs> I could remember things then, <laughs> it's a lot harder now, <laughs> you know, it takes more time to, to push the gray matter that is more concrete now, to do that, so I'm, again, I'm answering from who I am now, so, yeah, I, re you know, I remembered those parts, but I played them hundreds and hundreds of times to be able to do that, and they were visual, actually, they were movies to me. Oh, can you, can you explain that? That's I'm interesting. A, I'm, a, I'm a visual learner, okay? So, and guitar is, is such a patterned thing. I, I, I can't imagine playing trumpet or a single note instrument and having that visual because I can see, like on a keyboard, all the notes at once. I see a scale as, a, as like an ink blot as opposed to da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I see all the notes at once. So once you see these blobs on the instrument, it's, it's kind of how I memorize things. And then I chunk it together. So I see this ink blob here. This is this activity. Whatever the part is. And then I see this thing and then this little thread that goes here like this, you know, like a thread. And then it goes up to this chunkier thing, but it's on a higher area. So there was a lot of visual movie thing. It was because it wasn't. This is a G major 7 and it's Lydian, so we have a flat 5 in it and blah, blah, blah. I'm not thinking like that at all. There were shapes. Well, that's that's very interesting. So it's almost as if you had kind of a mental map of the of the guitar, is is that right? So you can visualize the frets and and the different finger positions, and and you're thinking more in sort of tactile spatial terms in, than rather than yes. in terms of what the actual notes are. Yes, definitely, and still kind of do that. I mean, I know what I'm playing now, hopefully, <laughs> mm -hmm. but uh, uh, it's always because because of the nature of the instrument, you know, it's it's keys don't matter. Certain to a most to a mostly degree they do, but I mean it's pattern. So it, it's like you're you're thinking in sets of numbers or whatever now, and it's just like here's the root and here's these distances from that place. So G is no different than A flat. You just move on a piano. The the shapes are all different. So keys matter, right? You have one scale form for each key. We have multiple scale forms for every key. They're the same scale forms for every key. So the instruments are so so different it becomes extremely pattern-oriented. And then, for the memorization part, I'm trying to break free of pattern-oriented. I want to know what the note sounds like. I want to speak, okay? But that's way different than the b part thing. It was the memorization of that was shape-oriented, area-oriented, and just, you know, I knew it was a G when I'm trying to remember parts, but I can't, <laughs> too long ago. But it was very shape-movie. 
for me. And that's how I always, you know, when I deal with a student that is not like that, I, we immediately realize that, that, that they're more, they need a name to call it or something like that. And I just have movies. And so sometimes it's harder to communicate with someone like that. That's just who I am. But what about, what about your inner ear? I mean, do you, do you hear these things in your head before you play them or do they just come out more in a, a tactile way, in, in a sense of you, you have gestures that are sort of built into your, your muscle memory and, and they emerge that way? Or how, how does that process work? You're talking about now? Yeah. Okay. Um, hopefully, it's both. And hopefully, it's you hear it. Okay? That's what I'm working towards. But we all have cliched licks. You know, I can listen to a player and they play that and I go, oh, that's Pat Metheny. Like, he does that thing. Well, he's really, really incredibly good. But there's points where you, I don't know that it's conscious thing. So it's just like a speech pattern. If you say the word cool, you know, you're going to have your, your common speech patterns, and it's the same thing. But if I can make it like a voice, we're virtuoso speakers, decent musicians. And I just don't want it to be an instrument. I want it to be a voice. So I want it to be that. So I'll sing what interval it is. I'll sing what I'm playing and try to understand that. It gets hard when you have multi-notes. but So that's the goal. But still, a huge amount of the time, it's my hands just playing and I'm watching it go. So we were talking about Trout Mask Replica and the process of putting those tracks together. And so one, one thing that's really interesting is that when you look at all of the different Beefheart records, it seems like he always had to have basically someone functioning as a musical director, right? So if you look at um, Safe as Milk, that would have been Ry Cooter, and on Trout Mask, it was John French, and on Decals, it was you. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the process by which you ended up being the, the main musical director of that album and how that process worked. Um, well, it was a pretty easy handoff. I mean, we all know John came and went a few times. <laughs> so uh, he was gone. Um, somewhere along the line of, I'm trying to think of the year, is it 1970 that cassette recorders were not invented, but probably put into production? And so we got a cassette recorder. And so at that point, it was a lot easier. No, I did no notation. So um, I was the person to do it. Um, I don't know if that was decided, but it, it's, I can only remember it evolved in some type of way, but it was just Mark and I and Don, right, and Art at that point. Uh, then various things, people would come back, but, um, but it was a cassette recorder. So I just, he'd say, Bill, come in over and get this because I was not living at the house anymore. And so I'd get in my car, whoosh, was right up the street and record and record and record and record. And I'd take some notes just about what this was, this and that. Right. And then I didn't take any notation. I just went back and parsed it out from what they were on the tape. The first ones, uh, well, if you go back to, uh, I'm going to make this real long, but it's, it describes a lot of the tunes on the, the, a lot of tunes were in E flat. Okay. E flat minor, black keys on a piano. Right. Okay. And he discovered the black keys. So a lot of a lot of these tunes, you know, uh, Big Dummy and et cetera. And again, I can't remember them all because I just moved on. But um, and then uh, the the two, the peon and one red rose, all white keys. So he found that major scaly thing, and he found that other thing. And so a lot of those tunes that came out were from that division. Okay. Uh, and then some of the tunes were just whistling parts, a lot of whistling parts. Uh, Big Toe was uh, whistling. Um, 
Lick Mighty Cows Off was it actually in a rehearsal, kind of came about with main parts, uh, uh, just sang it, whistled it, you know, da 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 da, now that melody part. But the the parts that were piano was just cassette, and I just learned the parts because he would play, and that you got that, and then there'd be a space, you got that, and I was the only guitar part. There it is, right? And then the the other one's the bass part. That's all I remember about that part of it. So from that point of view, I guess the process was substantially similar to how Troutmask was put together. So he would go off and invent these parts, either whistling them or playing them on the piano, and then and then record them, and then you would be given a tape. I had the tape. I I just had box loads of, you know, a suitcase full of tapes. I don't know where they are, but yeah, I'd have to learn the parts and then parse them out, um, try to stay as true to the parts as, as he played them, change things when necessary. I tried not to change order of things, but I did that a few times, just for playability or plausibility and i didn't tell him and then with one red rose and uh peon i moved a lot of things around and took some parts out yeah. <laughs> one story that really kind of set it up for me is when i came and played i worked on one red rose and i came up and played it for him and he he said stop jan come and listen to what i've done <laughs> and i knew oh man the overview was there but it was just like uh, not quite, Don. <laughs> you know? So I had an inside feel for that part at that point, you know, and that's why I was okay with doing it, but not saying that I wrote anything, not saying anything like that, just saying I cleaned up the mess. With that in mind, I mean, the text that appears on the back of the record, where it states that all compositions are composed and arranged by Don Van Vliet, mm-hmm. it seems like it's somewhat debatable, right? I mean, particularly the, well, not not the composition of aspect. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to accept that he actually wrote the parts, even though... Absolutely. Obviously, they had to be modified somewhat in order to fit the instruments, in order to, you know, and in order to be made playable as such, and to fit together with, with all the other parts. But the, the arrangement aspect, it seems to me that credit should be given to the musicians for that, because there was obviously a great deal of, of input that, that went into that in terms of precisely how things fit together, how many times you'd have to repeat a section, and so on and so forth. Is that something you would agree with? Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with the part that him claiming that he did all of this is just bull. It's just not true. Um, and, and uh, you know, hearing John, remembering what John said about what his process was and how things had to be changed a little bit. So those things were articulated, but there was never anything like, well, let's fix this crap. That that wasn't it, you know. It was, you, we had to do what we felt was necessary to keep it to what it is without the ridiculousness of an impossible part or let's flip those parts, it works better, that kind of stuff, you know. So there was always those claims. I mean, I wrote it in eight and a half hours. Well. <laughs> you sat at the piano for three hours today. Now, are you counting only the time your fingers touched the piano or the time John was working on the parts? You know, it's, it's that, it's that idea is such bullshit that it's easy to go, well, wait a minute, what did he do? He had a great overview of what it was. And the little parts in between were taking care of us with more and more of us being part of that as things went on. One thing that I find actually quite intriguing is the is the game, the rhythmic aspects of, of these parts. I keep coming back to the rhythm because that, that's something that I think is so striking on right. those records. And I've heard actually some of the comp- piano composition tapes. There's a few of them floating around. I think there's one on the Grow Fins box set and there's a couple of others you can hear on the internet. And one of the things that really, that really strikes me is they're kind of arrhythmic in a sense, right? There's no sense of pulse particularly. 
And if mm -hmm. there is a pulse, it's fleeting, right? And he, and he changes it. So, you know, when, when approaching something like that, so when you, when you were working on One Red Rose, for example, and you're dealing with a piano tape in which you can't really relate it to a, a rhythmic pulse of any particular kind. Correct. It's, it's, it's very rhythmically free. You know, when you have to learn something like that, do you have to rationalize it mentally in terms of thinking, you know, well, this is a this is going to be an eighth note, this is a quarter note, in, in, you know, in terms of figuring out what the tempo is going to be and all of this sort of thing. I'm just curious as to how that process worked, really, in terms of the rhythm. It, it was, it's not rubato, but it, it's it's free-flowing. And, and that was the harder part with uh, Peon, because we had to do that together. So we rehearsed where it hurries, where it lays back, you know, those things. But um, with One Red Rose, it was da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, so it had this jumpy feel. So I tried to just stay true to those sections, even though the sections were, things were dropped out. This was flipped. This was flipped to make it move through the instrument better and be a, a more coherent thing. So there was a lot of edits in leaving it parts out. Um, but it was just imitative of the part. I think a lot of what you're saying is there was no time field. There might have been a time field, but his inability to accurately play it more than once made the time feel fumbly and confused the feeling of the time. So you, he goes, da da buh, buh. Okay, he got it that time. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Is it, is it three against two? Or whatever it is, I think it was he was trying to play it in a rhythm and that he couldn't repeat the parts. I think that's part of that. Right, so then his, his inability to reproduce the parts exactly as he maybe imagined them rhythmically, that then becomes part of the composition mm -hmm. in a sense because you're trying to duplicate that that sort of slightly fumbly aspect to it. Well, if it was there, if that's what was, the part was repeated, but if he, he the first one was correct and the second one had a edit in it, you just repeated the first one, okay? And it became repeated rhythm. It depended. It, it just depended on if it was chunk, 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 da, 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 chunk, 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 da, da, you know, however, then we had to interpret that, right? Well, because there have been a few attempts made at actually transcribing these and, and you know, producing sheet music of, of various uh, songs from those albums. <laughs> and I don't know if you've seen any of those, actually. You know, when the student of mine sent Frownland to me, that kind of went, wow. And then, then he found another one, so he's obviously checking YouTube videos. And there's, there's these four guys, and I think they're in Oklahoma or something. It's a crew of people. And they did midi up these parts and the drum parts sounded ridiculous, but still, and they were, you know, 60, 70% accurate and they'd done all these parts and, and, and that was, it was unique. Um, they had to kind of midi it up. And so, yeah, I heard that, but again, at that point, it's, I'm not needing to revisit the music. And even in, in you, what struck me about what you did with Frownland was, is you analyzed what it was. People say, oh, it's atonal and it's improvised and all that. And you said, uh-uh, uh-uh. Polytonal, polyrhythmic, right? But very repeatable and the tunes repeated every time, right? And that kind of just says, no, it wasn't improvised. You know, so that, that struck me. These things are sort of like, okay, it's interesting, I guess, but, uh, you know, that's so long ago for me. I, I'm sorry, I just can't care that much about reproductions of things that were so long ago in my past. Interesting, when I listen to the record, at least that makes it more cohesive rather than seeing parts written out, okay? So that is more meaningful to me is actually just listening to the record and uh, just the sound of it and the overall part because, you know, you have to think of what went into these parts and, and, and that, and I like dissecting it, but then, eh, I just don't care anymore. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm doing something else.
I think that's entirely understandable. It's um, it, it just it just struck me that in a sense it's kind of you can't really transcribe these pieces. They're not they're not thought of in that way. They don't. I, I find they don't really work as sheet music because the, the again the, the rhythmic aspect and the the timbre also the particular timbre and and playing styles that you all had, these are things that you can't really notate very easily. And so there's a there's a, there's an aspect of it that you kind of can't really capture and and, and reproduce in a sense. So. That leads me into an, another question, which is actually the, the particular guitar timbre of that album, which is something that I, I find really striking. And I think a lot of people have commented on this. It has a certain dryness, a kind of sharpness to it in the, in the tone. And how do you, well, first of all, what is, what is your feeling about the, the guitar timbre today, you know, particularly in, in light of everything that you've, you've done since then, where you've done a great deal of exploration of, uh, of, of different guitar sounds across your, your, your recorded output? And also, just how, how was that sound achieved technically? Because it's not simply a question of instruments and amplifiers. There's also a question of the right-hand technique, which you've described as being very aggressive. How was the timbre created from a technical point of view, not just in terms of actual guitars and amplifiers and, and this sort of thing? Basically, the metal finger picks, which Jeff was using, and I don't know that I think it was... Uh, I can't remember the guy that was in the band before me that was like a country player and played uh, with adventures and things. Um, but I think he used them and he was more of a Travis picking type guy. And I don't know how to play that. It's, it's, it's almost country, you know, this, that kind of thing. So I don't know how to play that. I don't like it really, but, um, but it was metal finger picks. And so, okay, now we're using those. And then we started, and then as the trout mask thing started going in, it was play it harder, play it harder. And that's coming from Don. So I think what happened is we were stunning the strings. If you play so hard, they can't vibrate. You're hitting them so hard, they're hitting the neck. And so it's not freely, openly breathing. And and that's what I don't like about it if I listen to it now. Uh, the redoing of Peon happened but it was like to say there's another way that this stuff could be conceived okay um and that was a mallard thing but um the finger picks i threw away immediately because i want to be able to have these tones but it did make it consistent over the top um i think the telecaster that i played and i had a 330 i think at the time too but the telecaster has a brittle nature to it and the terrible amplifiers we used <laughs> um but it was basically stunning the instrument by plucking so hard. Um, another technique that comes out of that is, um, and this was pretty interesting. We actually, you know, rock guys are playing power chords, and we did a bunch of that. But it was an area, an area where he says, strike the strings, and, and this is a very cool part. It has a, that sound, you know. So being able to deaden notes and overplay this hand so hard where you're muting strings, but you might only be playing one note, you know, this turns into Stevie Ray Vaughan blues stuff. But the stunning effect of that, instead of a real different thing, effect by beating the, beating the crap out of the guitar. Here's one. You can't play it that way. Okay, you can't just play the notes in the duration. You have to play it. That nature is what was going on there. And it was using heavier strings, which I would tear off the guitar. Um, so very, very opposite of what I'm trying to do now. But. So it was very percussive, basically. Very percussive. 
it was hard to get the notes to sustain the tone on the instruments. You know, Jeff had a, he was using the 330 on top mask and he had a warmer, mellower tone. He had a mellower sound to it. Believe it saying that in this, but in that context, it was compared to me at the Telecaster on the back pickup with metal finger picks, just terrorizing the strings. <laughs> so it had this, these stunned strings effect, which, you know, fit the hyperness and the overtop over-the-top energy of the, of the recording or the, the music. That's really interesting to me because there's actually a, a contemporary string technique, I mean, used on string instruments, violins and cellos and so on, which is used in a lot of 20th century uh, string quartet repertoire, where you, you take the, the string and you, you do a pizzicato, but you, you pull it so hard that it actually snaps back and rebounds off the, off the, uh, the fingerboard. And it's called a Bartok pizzicato. I was going to say it sounds like Bartok, you know, the plump, 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 plump. I mean, I listen to the Bartok quartets every once in a while just to find out if I'm increasing my music ability because I can hear more of it every time. Some of my favorite music. But that plink, 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 right? And there's a slapping against the neck. You can tell that's going on. I was wondering one other thing. In your book, you mentioned some of the things that you were listening to at the time. And there were a lot of names associated with the avant-garde. So people like Stockhausen and uh, Albert Ehler and uh, Ornette Coleman and so on. And I'm wondering if these types of musicians had an effect on your playing. I mean, if, if these were just things that you were listening to, they were sort of part of your overall cultural world at the time, or if you were actually pulling things in from, from those recordings and trying to incorporate them into your playing. No, more the cultural thing. I wouldn't have known enough to be able to learn things. I mean, I tried to cop licks off of things like that, but it was more of the early schooling of we were going to be artists and, um, you know, we were these kids, you know, desert rats and Don saw himself as a, as an artist and, uh, rightly so. But, uh, I think they were just more about feed the kids, feed the kids some hairy parch. <laughs> so they're not listening to blues licks and stuff so that it was more of the whole cultural thing. And in hindsight, I'd never sign up to have this much abuse, but in hindsight, you know, um, it ends up being a, a real strength that I got uh, introduced to music like that and that it was legitimate. And especially then getting to meet people like that. It made somebody that does that for a living, you know, as a, uh, wow, I was going to be a mailman. And now I see Harry Parch, you know, and it, it, it made things like that possible for me because I did not grow in, up in that environment. I was a little middle class kid. So it was more cultural. I wasn't learning that not till later. But it was it was something that was present. So you, you and the other members of the band, and, and presumably Don also, were uh, aware of and interested in sort of experimental composed music, 20th century music, things like uh, Stravinsky and, and, and Schalkhausen and Bartok and so on at the time? Or did you become more aware of it later? Or No, those were at the time. I mean, it was very specific, you know, um, the electronic Stockhausen, Pauline Oliveris, those were things he played. And then he'd go back and play us Bob DeRoe, who was this jazz singer with this interesting, funny voice. And then uh, Teresa Brewer, which he, he learned his little hiccup thing he does in his voice from her. Um, but these were odd little tidbits. But basically, I, it was the ones that were artistic, outside things that were influencing us. We didn't do a lot of listening. We were practicing. Okay, so there wasn't a lot of listening sessions, but there was just this introduction of those things. And, and only till later, again, when I started learning more about what's inside music and how it's built and all of that. And there's a lot, a lot of stories I get about that. But it was just, I think it was influence. And then when Don and Ornette started hanging out, it became a different kind of thing. Yeah, I, mean, I just find it completely fascinating. You mentioned Pauline Oliveros, actually, who died uh, very recently. And 
there was at, at that time, I mean, in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a kind of temporary cross-fertilization of the, the avant-garde, the, the sort of European avant-garde, with popular music in, in America. When I say popular, I don't necessarily mean commercial music, because I, I think it's two separate things. You can have music that comes out of popular traditions that's not necessarily commercial, right? And you can have uh, commercial music that, that isn't necessarily based on popular idioms. But this idea that you would have avant-garde European music somehow influencing music coming out of popular traditions and that they would fuse and create this extraordinarily powerful type of expression, I think is quite fascinating. It didn't, it didn't last very long necessarily, right? You don't see a great deal of that as the 70s wear on. But was, um, was that something that you were, you were consciously aware of at the time, that this was a, a, a very novel kind of blending of two very different musical streams? Not at the time, no. Again, hothouse, we were doing what we did. That was it, with this mild influence inside the hothouse. Very soon after that, I realized that, uh, actually it was probably after I was in the band, uh, <clears throat> that what happened is in the 60s, in the, even though this is through a rock you know, outlet, not that it was rock, bands, if you could stand up and tune your instrument, you got a record deal. There was, <laughs> you could play, and and I think the business people were were uh, taken. What do we do with this? How do we market this? Right? Because they're they're looking at money, and they go, now we need all these hippie guys with or whatever they're thinking long hair bands, and we need to sign them and make money off of them. So the bands were controlling what was going on. So the influence from outside influences could happen, as. It got more and more controllable as we got into the 70s and they started making more money. The bands were then more pared down. You don't get to record that song on your album, that kind of stuff. So more and more, I think, corporate control started changing what the music business was. In the, in the 60s and very early 70s, it was still free and they didn't know how to, to make money from these people. So they got to do their own music more. I think it's corporate influence, actually. It seems like there was a period where people just had no idea what was going to be marketable and what wasn't, and they would just try anything. And uh, it sort of resulted in this extraordinary renaissance of musical creativity. But yeah, I guess once uh, once they realized how much money there was to be made and, and started getting a little yep. bit more scientific about what would work and what wouldn't. So Exactly. Okay, I just have a, f a few more questions. And one of them is actually the extraordinary longevity of these albums. I mean, well, I, I think you could say that about most of the B-Part albums. Most of them are, are extraordinarily persistent. You know, people, people are still fascinated by them 40, 45, 50 years later. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your perspective on that and what is it exactly about these albums that, that has, has made them stick around so much? I mean, there, there's, a, there's an enduring fascination, you know, generation after generation discovers them. Um, well, off the top of my head, I think if you do something that is so, and you're first on the block, if you do something that is so different, and definitely Trout Mask and Lick My Decals Off would be in that that grouping there. Changed, and then there was other elements that still stick, Clear Spot or whatever, that stick with that, but have a uniqueness to it. But Excuse me. Um, to it, but I think when you, there's no neighbors, <laughs> there's nobody else doing that. It sets itself up for it. Again, is it a rock album? No. Is it? What is it? If it's unbustable, I mean, if you do something that unique and unbustable, you can't put it in a box. If it could have been put in a box and the people that followed it had maybe done a better version of it or had grown in that way, I think people may, people may have tried. 
Maybe they did, and I haven't heard it, so I don't want to say that, that we did it and nobody else did, because that's not what I think. But I think it is that, that it, it, it is so unusual at the time, and nobody and it just didn't happen again so it's just like it was frozen moment in time and nothing kept it didn't keep getting replicated and you know it, it's there it is and especially because it has exposure in that world of pop culture right i mean i think of things that you might write that's not going to i don't i wish it would for your sake <laughs> but you're going to write things it's not pop culture that's going to grab onto that it's a vest, different set of people and that they're expecting change and they're expecting these things and so there's a more i think a, probably a more rational even keel this was just a bomb that blew up in the 60s along with the culture and nothing else kind of succeeded it had it been rooted in something more obvious it would have been i think it, it wouldn't be i don't i won't call it revered as notable well, it, it does have an extraordinary freshness to it. And that, that's one thing that, that always strikes me in what I would consider to be great works of art is that they don't lose their newness, right? So you can, you can hear them you know, many, many times and you can hear them over an extended span of time. And when you come back to them, they'll still have something new to say to you and they'll still appear new and fresh in a certain sense. And you know, listening to some you know, great orchestral masterworks of the earlier part of the 20th century, I, I, I was at a a concert a few weeks ago where I heard the Rite of Spring, and I mean that's a piece from 1913, and it, it sounds absolutely fresh. You know, it's it's a it's it's a kind of permanent new quality to it. And I would say that Trout Mask and Decals and a lot of the other Beefheart stuff as well, they have that quality, and it's a very very rare quality. It's not something that you can come up with, you know, off the off the cuff. It's it's something that I would almost say you 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 have to be sort of historically lucky in a sense in order to to have that happen. Absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely, but thinking of Stravinsky and the skill set, learning huh, to do that and to write pieces of music, and then I don't know. I'm just off. You know this. I don't, but I know the piece of music and love it. Um, and I, I totally identify with what you're saying. Is that it's fresh again? That's why I said it when I revisit the bar talk thing. It's just like I hear more. I don't know exactly. I'm not digesting what scale or what folk melody he was using to create these things, but I can hear it and digest it and hear it and learn every time I listen to it. And I learn more. I love it. It's my morning walk music, but um, I do think it's lucky. I do think it's amount of time because I think culture, it has a lot to do with it. I mean, I heard Paganini was the first rock hero, right? Where he's, you know, women's underwear going up on the stage because he could just play all these notes or whatever. But I think that was a thing, you know? So, had we had more documentation of that time period, it's been going along like that for a long time. But uh, the, to bring it back to the Beefheart stuff, it just bombed. And we're talking in, in, in 1969. So it was a wide open, perfect timing for something like that to, to happen. And Frank Zappa facilitated it. There's that too. I mean, he's letting this happen and, and he's creating the, the, the money to go into the studio to do that. There was some foresight there, too. Did you have a good relationship with Frank Zappa? I always did. He was always working very hard. Uh, it was a great inspiration for how hard he worked. But, uh, no, I always had a, a good relationship with Frank. He, oh, yeah, that's that chord. Ooh, the, when I learned that a major 7 chord, a G major 7, is an E minor 9. Oh, my God. You know, big things, you know. So we would talk guitar stuff, and he, he gave me these... Uh, um, little three by five cards. He was incarcerated for making blue movies for a few months at some point in his, in his early career. And, uh, and he had written out all these scales on these cards and, and, and he says, here, check these out. I don't have them, <laughs> but 
no, I had a great re- relationship with him, and I thought he really put up with a lot of crap from Don and situation with the band and all that. But uh, the only part I ever saw was good. Yeah. Now, knowing band members, you know, I'll just leave it at that. You know, everybody yeah. that is working that hard when there's people behind him, the wake that that person makes does ruffle feathers or bounces people around behind him because they're all in the food chain. So that's just how that's just the nature of that. Well, I mean, there, it, it was it was a wonderful thing that he facilitated the recording of the album. And I mean, the, I know Don was very critical about him, you know, on a number of occasions and they, they didn't really see eye to eye and had a falling out at, at some point. But I mean, just the fact that he would do that with a record that clearly was not going to be a, a smash commercial success and that was not going to be an easy sell. And he did it anyway. And he and he, and he put it out and, uh, you know, basically gave Don complete creative control. So it's a it's a very laudable thing, you know, whatever, whatever else uh, one might have said about him. So. No, I agree with that, but he was also putting out things like Wild Man Fisher, so it kind of put us in that, we, you know, we're going, wait a minute. So I understand that part for us, because we're working that hard, and he's putting us in, a, in this comedy, crazy street person realm. So there, I understand that, but from Frank's perspective, all of it facilitates him. I mean, it was hurt. It was helping him. I mean, he wouldn't, you know what I mean? It wasn't like, it wasn't going to hurt his credibility by facilitating that. Well, we just had a few minutes left, but there's there's a couple of things I just wanted to, to ask you very quickly, and you've been very patient with all of my questions, so thank you so much for again for taking the time to do this. Um, there's one there's one figure from that time period that that is, let's say he's become somewhat shadowy, and that's Jeff Cotton, and we 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 don't hear much from him, and we don't know really what he's doing these days, and I wonder if you have any contact with him, or if you have any idea of what he's up to these days. I had contact with Jeff for a while. He was way out of contact for a long time. Then he started calling me, and then I called him back. I lost contact. It was really great. This is just, oh, it's going to be, I'm going to say, at least eight, nine years ago or whatever. But it was really good for me to talk to him because Jeff and I had become friends before he joined the band and then me later. Um, I do know that recently he lost his life partner, his wife, spouse. And so I think he's going through some tough times and that's why he's kind of been invisible because there's some people that wanted to talk to him and it, I don't know, and it wasn't you with some other, for some other reason, John French and I keep in contact. Um, I just wish him the best. Uh, I learned a lot from Jeff. He was a very good guitar player. We were best of friends kind of at this one period of time. There was always guitar competition. So we were kind of that thing too as teenagers, but, um, I, I really liked Jeff. I always had a great feeling for him and, uh, it, I learned a lot in that really early time in the Beefheart band and his exit was horrible. Um, so I just wish him the best. I don't have contact with him though. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing that the, the majority of the people involved in that project and the other ones, you know, got through it. I'd like to say as, as well as they did in a sense, because it, it going through something like that so young could, could have just traumatized somebody terribly. It, it did. <laughs> it did it did all of us i'm sure in various degrees you know um it's still there it's it's still there but most of it's positive at this point yeah well i mean we have this we have this extraordinary music and i mean it's 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 interesting to consider whether from the perspective of someone who had to actually suffer through all of it, whether it was in fact worth it, you know, on a, on a personal level to, to deal with all of that. But at least for the, you know, those of us who love the music, it's, it's there and it's absolutely wonderful and it tremendously enriched so many people's lives. And so, 
you know, there was a terrible price to be paid in terms of actually putting it together, but the recorded legacy is uh, is absolutely unique, and I think it's it's going to stand the test of time. That's really cool. Uh, you know, the whole thing for me is, yeah, it was all of those things. I learned from those things. Trauma creates knowledge, you know. Yeah, I don't want to sign up and go through it again, but it created a lot of knowledge. When Don died, we all were asked to say some things on a website, and it made me think about, what do I think about it? You know, because it was a real obvious moment. And, um it's pretty easy to just forget because I don't have to live with that anymore. I don't have to live with any of the hard part of it. And I have to take responsibility. And I think everybody else has to take responsibility for if you're stupid enough to put up with that, you have to own it. Right. Even though we were young, I had to own that. I was perfectly set up to, to take such abuse. Uh, you know, I needed uh, my lack of self-esteem at that young age allowed me to do that. In hindsight now, I get to live through the idea of what you said, which thank you very much. Um, geez, something I did had an impact. That's a that's a nice thing to feel that whether you, it was intended, it was intended in a very general sense. Lucky me, I get to feel that now. So that it's turned into a real positive thing. I don't live through that music, and I don't, you know, I as I've said in the interview, I I I like parts of it now a lot more than I used to. I'm hearing it from a little more of a musical education rather than just an attitude, but it, it's it's all fine with me. And if I did something that made somebody's life better because of that, and it's bigger than your next door neighbor saying hello, awesome. That's great. Well, I can tell you, I actually, I, I first encountered that music when I was maybe 15 or something like this. And strangely enough, I mean, first of all, I, I, I liked it. it instantly immediately there was no there was no delay it just immediately <laughs> it, it immediately spoke to me and in a, in a funny sense it it was it was almost consoling that somebody else on the planet thought this way and expressed themselves this way and and could play this way you know and and just knowing that that had happened and that that existed and that it spoke really strongly to me uh was uh, was just a, a tremendously um, enriching thing you know and it, it gave me actually i would say a great deal of courage and strength in terms of pursuing my own vision. It's a wonderful thing to observe artists, uh, musicians of all stripes. You know, this, this touches upon something that we, we mentioned very, you know, very much at the outset, basically following a personal path and not deviating from it. And it's just a right. testimony, I think, to the, to the strength of the human spirit that you can get through these sorts of difficulties and come up with something absolutely amazing at the other end, you know, so. Speaking as a, as a, as a uh, you know, someone who, who loves this music very deeply, I can only say thank you for having, having done it and having, uh, having preserved it for everyone to hear. Well, thank you for saying that. You know, it makes me happy about that. But like I said, the very much the same thing for me, um, meeting Harry Parch. I mean, I'm in the band for two weeks, and we're sitting front row with Frank Zappa, Don and me, and I can't remember somebody else was there. Maybe it was Gail Zappa. And Harry Parts comes down, and we're talking to him, and I'm seeing all these instruments, and I'm going, man, where have I landed? And then meeting Ornette, and, and you're just having casual conversations. And when we played in New York, and Pharaoh Sanders, and blah, blah, all these people are there, and Charlie Mangus, who wouldn't talk to me, but he was there. Those things, those were people that I revered, and, and that, man, these are, these, this is their lifestyle. I had such a conservative middle-class upbringing that that was it took something that break it open like that like i could live my life quite differently than this and it so it just like what you were saying about this you know is that early experience of being around grown-ups that worked hard at something that not uh main street you know? 
It was, yeah, same thing, same thing. So the people that keep doing this or are part of it, um, you know, it's they're setting it free for somebody. That's why I like music, you know. I just wanted to follow up with some of the questions that we went over a couple of weeks ago, and there's a couple of areas in particular that I wanted to touch on. One of them is the actual process by which Trout Mask Replica was rehearsed and put together. So obviously that's something that's fairly well documented. There's a lot that's been written about it. But to my mind, there's still a fair bit about that process that is somewhat difficult to grasp just because it was so unusual. So one of the things I was wondering about, maybe you can clarify this for me, was I know that the album was written on piano and that John French was in charge of transcribing what Don was playing. But how did he actually go about teaching the band members those parts? I mean, were you guys sitting at the piano? Was he giving you sheet music? How did that process work? Well, I can only speak for myself, really, but I'm assuming it was the same for everybody. Um, I sat down at the piano because I needed to see what, what it was. We weren't using notation. I mean, for me to remember parts, I did some type of scribbling in tablature or whatever, you know, just telling me where parts were. The rhythm was always the thing that I had to really remember because of the various rhythms. But for me, it was sitting down at the piano, and I would have John, you know, slow it way down because the parts, especially if they were difficult ones, the single note lines were pretty easy to catch up on but when they were these dissonant parts or different parts that I never put on a guitar before I was going about it very slowly and I think I might have written out some rhythmic things or any hints to myself but that's how I sat down and did it with with John going through most of those parts but then there was also times when uh, he would do sculpting the music in the rehearsals where he would whistle things and go do the chugga chugga thing and whatever he would describe you know play it upside down with the notes descending you know, there, were, <laughs> there would be some odd descriptions, but for sure, uh, most of it was, um, especially on the, the chunks that are, are actually the band, you know, not China Pig and things that were done by other people. But those things were mostly sitting down at the piano, doing the parts, going back and checking on them later. So that's what I did. I'm sure that was pretty much the same for both Mark and uh, Jeff. So it must have been an incredibly slow process, though, because there was just such a just a sheer amount of material on that on that album. I mean, and, and to have to remember all of it as well. Right, because it was memorized. Definitely. I mean, the tunes were fairly short and they were dense. Uh, a lot of times there weren't massive repeats. It, you know, there was repeats, but so they were just end on end on end on end. So I think once you got the parts, almost that was the easy part. Get, then they were separate. They were just this chunk, then this chunk, and this chunk. And then you'd string the three chunks together. And then the whole process of trying to rehearse it. You know, it was usually pretty much a disaster, as I remember, in the beginning, because we'd all start and we go, that's what you're playing? <laughs> you know, so it was a little odd in that, in that uh, the first rehearsals of trying to play it, the four of us anyway. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was hard remembering it, plus it was so new to me, especially, you know, because we had switched gears. I was working on the earlier album, um, Strictly Personal, and those were, that was material that was more familiar to me with blues, but m moving in a, a newer direction, and I was way into it. It was great, and this stuff was like, what are we doing now? Uh, it took me a while to kind of wear it. <laughs> right, because, I mean, one of, the, one of the aspects of that process that certainly sounds unusual by, by any measure is the fact that you... You know, I'm assuming you had no idea what the other parts sounded like when you were learning yours. So, because normally when you're when you're when you'd be rehearsing with, uh, you know, a rock band or a blues band or something, you would you would have some idea of how your part would fit into the overall scheme of things. 
and so uh, presumably with with this that just wasn't the case at all and it must have been uh, very you know a very strange process in terms of actually putting them together when you would sit down together for sure and and, and again i the for me the rhythms were the striking thing and the things to the toughest things to remember you can i can visually map things on a guitar but remembering this rhythm and then that rhythm and then i'm fighting through two other rhythms and then the drums and at times you know it felt it felt right especially after a while but you know three against four and, and just this whole feel of things and then where it was actually not completely designed uh, as three against four or something that I could count that was countable. It was just, you play this and you, it almost became just an elongated shape. And then, but, and the, that's the, the more difficult tunes were that, you know, trying to just do that. And yeah, really that's the bass part. <laughs> yeah. Cause well, one of the, one of the things actually that I wanted to, to quote from your book that I found actually really interesting was you, you talk about the rhythmic aspect a lot. Of, of this music. And I think that that's something that in a way hasn't been adequately described. So, um, you know, in the book, you say that it was the rhythmic aspect that was the biggest musical influence that, that you've assimilated mm -hmm. from that time. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you, you also go on to say that the actual notes themselves in a certain sense were sort of interchangeable. So I wonder if you could develop that a little bit. So for, first of all, how would you describe the rhythmic aspect of the music and, and how have you assimilated it into your playing today? Um, I, jazzier, you know, um, a simple, you know, uh, dun, 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 you know, um, Afro, Afro jazz, um, Coltrane influence, um, those, those influences were the rhythm, uh, and that got me into listening to more aggressive jazz types of things and then Ornette Coleman and free things and all that. But the rhythmic thing was the part. And again, because of the memorization process, remembering newer rhythms that were new to me and then trying to put them together was harder to remember, again, because of mapping. But the notes, I wouldn't say they're totally interchangeable, but they were secondary because watching Don sit down and play what he would do. It was, you know, the, the herky-jerky and the, the, the dancing to what he's playing. You could tell that was what he's doing since he had no no piano skill at all, um, or traditional piano skill. He had art skill, but not piano skill. Um, it was the rhythm, and then he'd kind of chip away, and yeah, that's good. <laughs> so I don't know, and I, and I know that at times when we played things, I was two frets off or a fret off or something. He would never know that. Um, so uh, John would, though. I think uh, a lot of the time, it, so, are you doing that right? <laughs> so he had he had pretty good ownership of the parts. Um, that I remember anyway. So Don would have been going at things in terms of a, a rhythmic feel primarily, right? And then the notes mm -hmm. were sort of, mm -hmm. be sort of hung on to that in a way. Right, a texture, a texture. almost like a texture. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay, that's quite interesting. The other thing I was wondering with regards to that was that the, the parts were written on a piano and you know, not in a conventional way since Don obviously wasn't a piano player. And I, I, I gather that he was sort of you know, trying to feel his way along and, and, and write these things as he was going. So how do you take something that's written with complete disregard for guitar technique, right? Because he, he I'm assuming he didn't have the slightest notion of, of, uh, of finger positions or, or the way the strings are tuned on a guitar or anything like right. that. Or, or playing like this, <laughs> you know, where you're that wide, it's out of the range of the instrument, you know. Sorry, I interrupted there, but... Well, well, first of all, I mean, is that true? Did he have some notion of guitar technique? Because, I mean, I, I've read some things where 
that give me the impression that he 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 had preferences in terms of string thickness and stuff like that and and, and you know the way he wanted the the, the attacks to yeah, sound and the attack right but it didn't go beyond that no because i remember i have one sitting here showing him this and it was an a chord and he he was you know from his blues background and he he'd be going okay so he Okay, John Lee Hooker. Okay, and then he goes, show me that. And I'd show him how to do it. And then he'd sit there and go, learn this part. <laughs> so it came from an area of him doing that, you know, and he'd bang out some parts. But again, I, I still think that it came from what rhythm he was trying to get across and a feel that he had. And I, I'm, this is totally a guess. Not wanting us to bring our very pedestrian licks into the mess, Right. So by him designing it with those feels and keeping us away from making it guitaristic it, and the piano took it away from that, that's what gave it the character. I'm, it's hard to imagine he wasn't quite aware of that, but that was never a conversation. So he did have sort of guitar styles in mind when he was writing the parts. I mean, it oh, wasn't, yeah. it, wasn't, yeah. it wasn't completely abstract. No, no. This this thing that was the first time I had come across this, and it's a very blues-based thing, where you're playing A lot of the parts had that in it, and especially as we got into decals, and then there was a lot of things in E-flat because of the black keys. So it had that dark sound, and I tuned my, my E-string down to E-flat. But that type of technique where he'd want you, get the rhythm in there, hit it harder, and it wasn't something, and now I got finger picks and I can't mute. That's a difficult task but so those techniques of playing harder on the strings which took we're breaking strings so you get a gauge heavier right you get thicker strings um we i think we did a poor job of one thing of our choosing the amplification the amplification in those days was solid state amps and there was a thin crashy nasty tone that came out of it so the combination of me playing a telecaster with and i'm a spiny player anyway with finger picks, heavy strings through a crappy amp, <laughs> it created a sound. I mean, I don't know that he was aware of that. I think that's something that we could have done better, is better amplification. But the parts he did want them overplayed, stunning the strings past their normal, what they'd want to vibrate. That was pretty consistent. So, and the, the, the thing with the amplifiers, I mean, was that was that a, a decision that, that somebody made that they wanted that particular sound? Or is it just a matter of, you know, not having the money for better amps or... Yeah, okay. Funny. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we were playing at one point, there was these old silver, silver tone amps. They were really good for what they were. The whole band's playing through it. I mean, two guitars and bass into one little amp. And it, it, it amazed that it stood, withstood that. But And then I, honestly, I don't remember what I was playing through on the Trout Mass sessions. I think I was playing through a twin or some type of Fender rented amp. Well, you mentioned also this this idea that he didn't want you doing these sort of standard licks, right? He wanted something. He wanted a different quality, and there's a, there's actually a, something in, in your book that relates to that, which I think is quite interesting. Where you, where you say that if if he had told you directly what to play, it would have given you too much control over the music, right? It would have the, the process would have been too straightforward somehow, I guess. Yes, and, and exactly. So you 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 say that he kept control by sort of. I guess by giving somewhat vague instructions, but also by waiting until it sounded like something he liked rather than something he intended. And I just find that incredibly interesting, right? Because that's that's exactly right. That's exactly. 
right? It, it's it's so but, interesting because normally, you know, if you're a composer or a songwriter and, and you, you sit down to write something, you start with an idea and an, an intention of some kind and you try to get as close to that as you can. And with him, it's like it was completely upside down. Well, I think there was intention or, or at least an intention to please himself. <laughs> but no, it, it wasn't like when you sit down and you notate and you go, okay, this is a beautiful section. Okay, how do I do this? How do I modulate or do whatever you're going to do technically? There was none of that. But I think he had a feel for something in mind and then sculpted the band as we were playing, you know, so that would change parts like that. I think that wasn't always, there was no one way that it was all done. But I think the the idea of just moving it around and changing things and whistling and giving descriptions and keeping us away for two two days <laughs> talking and being dead tired you huh <laughs> zombies you're going to do anything yes take me to my leader <laughs> so there was that aspect to it as well that was going yeah on. yeah well, there was a big part of that aspect yeah so can you tell me just about about the, the the bass parts on these pieces i don't know if you have much recollection of those but i mean one thing I, I, I talk about in my Friendland video is the fact that they contain chords, which is really unusual. And I'm just mm -hmm. curious as to how that came about, if you had any, you know, if, if you remember discussing that with, with Mark Boston at the time, or um, how, how those sorts of bass parts evolved, because it's, it's not something you would normally give to a bass player. I, th I, th I think two things. Well, I mean, I remember Mark's reaction. Really? <laughs> I'm doing what? <laughs> but we all were doing that. I'm going to guess here that I think these were parts and Don was not going, Oh, it's a bass part. He, these are parts. I don't know how much change went from what Don said, who was doing what and John saying who's doing what or what that that's a conversation I just was not privy to. I don't know that that would be up to John, but um, I think it was just that there were parts and then, well, why can't you play those notes? What's wrong with you? I mean, why can't you play that note that's not on the guitar or seven notes at a time? And, you know, what's wrong with you? So it was con confrontational in that way. So there was no choice to do it. But I think that they were three equal parts rather than this is the low end and this is the foundation and we need this root played and those types of things. I just think it was three parts. Not Maybe not all the time. And I don't know how much, like I said, John had to do with, well, that's probably what Mark should play. So it's, I, that, it's, it's as though the bass is almost a third guitar in a sense, right? I mean, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah, just a lower register. And it, it, it evolved his technique quite nicely. Um, and when he, in, in later groups, when he started playing guitar, um, it is his, <laughs> it was pretty heavy handed because <laughs> of trying to do that physically. But um, it, it made that transition a lot, a lot easier for him, I think. He did a pretty good job when he when he'd gone to guitar in the later groups. So, what was, from your point of view, what was the most technically challenging piece from that from that period? Do you, do you remember any specific song as being, you know, particularly difficult? It's hard because I'd need to remember, and I think there's chunks of tunes that that were really difficult. But the tune that I remember of Trout Mask was Neon Meat Dream of an Octofish, or he says a Octofish, but um, uh, because it was in rehearsals playing it, I don't think that it was the dexterity of the parts, it was the rhythmic thing. I felt like I was carrying a ton of rocks to play through the tune. Just, uh, uh, uh. and a lot of my parts might have been this, and that there might have been floating around. Jeff played a little more airy than I did. And I think that was something that can, kind of came through as we started learning parts, and John might have something to do with that too. Um, but uh, 
difficult neon meat to remove an octafish because of rhythmically holding my own against the, that just that fear force of it. Um, on decals, yeah, I remember it was Flash Gordon's ape, and um, and I could be mixing this up, but I'm pretty sure last all horn all over it, and I had worked so hard on all these parts. And you couldn't hear any of my work. So maybe I was just disappointed, but I remembered it as being very difficult. Okay, but that's the best recollection I can get. I just remember, I should say Bill's corpse, but that would be for other reasons. <laughs> no, I mean, there's there's a few pieces like that from those albums where he, he would plaster his horn all over it, right? And it, it kind of obscures the, the instrumental backings, like Dachau Blues is like that as well. Right, um, right, right. And uh, so, I, I mean, you must have discovered that fairly late in the process, right? I mean, was it when the album came out and you, you hear it and you realize that he's, he's got this saxophone mixed really high or? I was only there for a little bit of the mixing on decals and not for trial mass, you know, so there was, you know, um, there was no choice in, in, in any of that. But again, there was chunks of all of them that were very difficult. I, there's some CDs out that John has and he sent me the parts, individual parts of decals. And I listened to it just to see what I was playing. I'm going, God, I did work hard on this stuff because <laughs> they were, it was weird. And my, you know, of course I want, ah, I wish I could have played that a little better. I wish I could have done that. But uh, it was just difficult stuff, you know, the technical parts. And so uh, those are the two that come to mind. So just moving beyond uh, decals, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how your relationship with Don evolved over the years. I mean, because I, I, I gather that it was very difficult during the late 60s. But as you move into... Uh, say albums like Clear Spot, for example, had that you know working process improved somewhat? If we think of Grow Fence, which was my worst time in the band, we had we had relocated and we were all in these cabins in the forest, which was nice. But I just I just got beat to shit the whole time there, and I was trying to decide can I put up with this anymore? And the the reaction of that particular album was I didn't have time to put my words in. Well, why didn't you slow the song down? That's your fault. Okay, so he had written this music and couldn't sing it fast enough, right? Okay, so, <laughs> that, dude, that's your fault. So I'm starting to think this and starting to go, okay. Ugh. So we do grow fins. And the problem I had with that, a lot of people like it, whatever, good, if you like it. But the tempos are like, uh, uh, what's it, Night of the Living Dead or something like that, you know, the the zombies and stuff. It's just way low tempos. The music got kind of simple. And it got simple without enough for me to keep the tune interesting. Maybe that's what it makes it stand up is because it stayed at home like a, a Howlin' Wolf tune. One chord, but you feel movement, tension, and release in there. But it's just really on a single um, chord. Uh, a lot of those tunes had that. So uh, that wasn't my favorite, but it was more from an emotional place. Clear Spot... Um, at that point, I had a lot to do with the sounds that were going on. A lot of parts, I was supposed to get writer's credit for a couple of the tunes, Clear Spot and Low Yo-Yo and Crazy Little Thing. All three of those were things that I was doing. Um, oh, keep that. Let's do that and move on from there. But at that point, mm, he liked me more, is all I can say. No offense, it was terrible. And then by the time we got to Clear Spot, I was the one that was... Uh, we had split up and I was living real close to Don and we were doing these things and we would just, there was more of a social connection at that point. Well, that was probably the first time. And plus, you know, I was still working on my parts and stuff. I was not a good practicer back then. It was just playing the music. Uh, but um, so in clear spot, 
a big part of it was Ted Templeman because he was a producer and we're in the studio and Warner brothers is spending money on us the first time. Okay. It wasn't like a quickie two day studio thing. It took us a while. And because of that and Ted saying, get out of the room, Don, you're a fool. You're messing things up. Get out of here. And you're messing up your own music. So the, the, the sonic quality of clear spot for its time and then the production was something new to me. So that was a whole new idea of what it was. And then there was a lot of me in, in, in parts. You know, I did a lot of overdubs here and there and played mandolin and things that I didn't know how to play. I just figured out a part. But And then there was enough just to edge with golden birdies and things in it to where it goes, oh, they still can come from somewhere else. Um, and then, of course, the last one, which was terrible. <laughs> You're referring to unconditionally guaranteed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, what I don't really get is, I mean, Clear Spot is such an amazing record. And I mean, it's kind of, it's like a renaissance for him because it's, it's, it's got that, you know, beef heart quality to it. And it's, it's, you know, it's really interesting and fresh and original sounding. Plus it's got, you know, it's got a more, uh, what would you call it? Communicative aspect to it. Like you could plausibly see Absolutely. those songs being popular on the radio and stuff like that. So, so he, he puts out this amazing record you know that you that you guys did and it's 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 so amazing and then and then he follows that with with uh, unconditionally guaranteed so wait, what what happened you know between the two albums <laughs> um the management i'll leave it at that okay and don wanted some money and um uh, he started feeling better about wait i can make some money here i want to do an album that sells i want to do that okay and that was definitely what had happened um uh, we had a nice rehearsal place with an, right on the ocean. It was beautiful. Um, and we're doing these tunes. And Alex had rejoined the band, uh, Alex St. Clair from the, the first, the original band. Um, and we're doing these simple tunes, and uh, we're all kind of, uh, but Don was out of the way. They were keeping him out of messing up things a lot. He would come and actually rehearsed with us at that time. It's the only time ever. Um, well, you know, he, he would sing a song or two here and there, but never an official rehearsal. We had official rehearsals and he showed up. So that was interesting. And then any weirdness where he's trying to blame somebody for messing up the song when he got lost, the management would say, wait, wait, wait a minute, Don, let's, 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 you know. So I think the management had a lot to do with saying, hey, you're going to make some money. We're going to sign some contracts. You're going to get all the money, just like always. Still, always that was the case. Um, and that's our fault. But... Uh, it was that it was going to get, we're going to sell a record and you guys got cachet and we, we're going to do this. And we go down to, to record the album and all of us, I think we're kind of going, okay, boy, some of these tunes are really, you know, really, uh, okay. <laughs> you know, it was hard to, you know, and being six years of time and being that age, it was kind of, it was hard to cut the cord. It really was, you know, to go, okay, this music sucks. If I'm suffering and I'm poor, why am I doing lousy music at the same time? But that was the, the ultimate thing. And we go in the studio and then these other players are brought in and uh, for solos and things like that, you know. And I go, you know, really? Six years and I haven't been allowed to play a solo? Really? You know, it's like, um, you know. So it was just time. It was just time at that point. But it was money. I thought Don thought he was going to finally make some money and he liked that, you know. Wanted to buy a house. He had a new car. That was new to him. No, not not new to him. It, it was had had been a while. Yeah, no, I mean that that makes sense. And uh, but I, he he must have also realized 
as he got to know you better and worked with you for longer and longer that that you know that you were an exceptional player and and realized that he was dependent on you and the others to to a certain degree right to, to translate his musical vision so i mean it, it, i get the sense that maybe at the beginning he might not have fully grasped that how you know how fortunate he was to have those kinds of musicians in his midst did, did you get a sense that he became aware of that as you as you uh, um, forward maybe not till after not till after we left um I think he somehow what was aware of that. I don't know the conversations with management. <laughs> Reminds me of Twin Peaks management. But anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I, I think he might have been aware of that, you know, but he was just when you learn, you know, it's like a bad marriage. You learn how to treat each other crappy and you stay like that, you know, that's, it's kind of, and that's what it was. It was, we were used to that, but the overt abuse and weirdness, 90% of that was gone at this time. So there was a breath of, wow, this is better. So maybe that's, I can't, I'm just trying to think about it now because I haven't thought about this for a long time. Maybe that's what kept me in it, doing lousy music, thinking, oh, wow. Well, maybe I'll get a paycheck too, and you know, maybe something's going to happen. Um, but I think he realized. I'm sure he realized it when they said, "Okay, now we're on tour, and they're not here anymore." And that wasn't that wasn't meant to stab him at all. It was just this is too much. And I remember I went and talked to Art Tripp, and I said, "This is just too much. We're not going to make any money. We're going to go on the road playing crappy music. I'm out of here." And he goes, "Me too." And then Mark at the same time so it was pretty right thing to do no intent to hurt him but he deserved it <laughs> i mean he paved his own road for that so yeah after a certain amount of time resentment just builds and builds and then it, you know it gets right. to a point where it can't be repaired i guess and did, right. did you ever consider rejoining after after the mallard experience no uh not at all um because of the mallard thing and, and I got to give Mark a lot of credit for that. He really wanted to stay busy. I was going, oh, I can breathe. <laughs> you know, the music business can't wait to lose more money or not get any money in a new situation. You know, <laughs> it, it was just, I wasn't ready for it. But Mark was, stayed there and he made his connection with Ian Anderson, and, which kind of started the Mallard thing. And uh, so, I'm okay, I'm in Mallard. And because of Bill Schumo, the manager and all of that, I became kind of, the guy and John came and then left, didn't want to do that. Art was there for the first and then not the second. Uh, but that I'm kind of losing my train of thought here. I'm thinking of the Mallard stuff, you know, but I was burnt out. So I didn't want to keep going after that. And so there was no thought. Now I'm back on track of rejoining the, the beef heart band. Uh, I don't think I was ever asked, but Don went all crazy over me a couple of times. God, you're the best guitar player on earth and all this. I think he might have been trying to drag me into that, but I was done. I was I was just done, you know, and I moved to Oregon and played classic guitar for six years <laughs> to hide. <laughs> so there's a, there's a beautiful piece on the first Mallard album, Yellow, which is just you playing solo. And I was just curious as to what that came out of. I mean, does that... Does that show the, the direction that you would eventually be going in in terms of learning classic guitar and learning a, a very different technique? How did that arise? Right after the Beefheart thing, you know, and starting Mallard, I started to practice again. 
which I'd done at 13 or 14 years old. So I'm going through scales, chords, arpeggios, and things, and not so chordal then, but it was just like I got to learn how to learn the, the the language. And I was just starting to play nylon string guitar, and was just trying to teach myself how to read because I <laughs> I tried to learn a a piece, uh, and I, I can't remember who it was, uh, not Leinda, but it's uh, Albanez, um, a piece, and I did it by year. Okay, well that took me weeks <laughs> and then i went this is stupid and then i just started reading notes and this isn't that hard you know i you know because i'd done it as a kid and then i learned the next piece in a few minutes you know what i mean or 10 minutes i get it not to play it to perform but i went through the piece and i go duh where have i been so then the nylon string guitar was part of that and i was starting to practice and i had purchased a a, a reasonable uh, classic guitar and so that started that process and yellow was actually in a tuning can't even remember. I think it's in an open tuning or just dropped D. I can't remember right now. Um, but that was just what I was working into. I thank you for the compliment, but I listened to it and it's kind of tough because that's when I started and played for six, seven years. That's all I did. I didn't. I was just at the end started getting back into uh, electric guitar and playing uh, jazzier things and trying to learn. You know, but that was the start of that. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and I, I really like that piece actually. Well, thank you. Um, I, I just have one last question, and that's actually relating to what I presume are your musical beginnings. So that's the Delta Blues style, which is something that um, I'm just interested in hearing a little bit about. Because you, you mentioned with regards to um, Big Eyed Beans from Venus, right, from, uh, from Clear Spot, that it, it had all of the elements of the Beefheart style that you expected you would be playing when you joined the band initially. Right, mm -hmm. but, then, but then you were confronted with all the trout mask craziness and all that kind of thing, and you didn't, right. you didn't get to, to play that style initially. So, and you say that it's it's based on a delta blues rhythm with this sort of right hand finger style. So, yeah. I wonder if you can maybe demonstrate that or just talk a little bit about that style. Because, ah. Oh, you're putting me on this. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think I can do it because <laughs> um, I don't know the piece, but. Uh, Can you hear that? It's the right hand. That was the first thing Jack Cotton showed me when I got in the band. It was just this. Okay, so that's a delta rhythm. That might have been a Jerry McGee thing when he was in the group or something like that. But um, more, more traditional things like that. Right, and that went into slide stuff, right? Okay, so that was the very first things of what we were doing that ended up being um, some um, sugar and spikes. Was that okay? Um, mm, <laughs> I can't remember. Sorry, too long ago. But those were the first. That was the thing where well, learning this rhythm, and then that's where the finger picks started showing up. And I had done a little bit of finger playing at that time, you know. But again, this was uh, when I first joined the band at 19 so i'd played bluesy things i before of course but not with right hand technique like that and i'd done a little bit of slide but i hadn't really worked hard on open tuning and, and learning those things so that was a that was school for bill and i think don had a lot to do with that for sure so the right hand technique and the and the use of the slide those are characteristic of, of delta blues as opposed to other yep. styles of blues playing right yeah, yeah. open tuning you know where you, where you have um you know robert johnson uh, anything along those lines, uh, 
And I'm not that studied. I mean, I am a blues player at the heart, but and that's kind of what started that. And I mean, way before that, from Wolfman Jack, hearing that from Mexico in Southern California, listening to Howlin' Wolf and Beefheart, because I was like in, what, 15 or whatever when they were doing their thing. Um, and then brought, ushered that in. But getting into the more articulate way of playing right-hand technique, that was new to me at that point. Wonderful. Well, that's, that covers everything. So thanks so much for, uh, for talking to me a second time. Mm-hmm.